Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Dale and I are back. We haven't been here for a bit, uh, but as per usual, uh, in the intervening weeks between our conversations here, uh, we've had many conversations with one another, and so these episodes are often the fruit of, of several of those conversations, As uh, and as per usual, this one will be as well. One of the things we, we've been talking a lot about for, for many years, but uh, in many ways over the last few months, I think in, uh, 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 in ways we haven't talked about it before, is the is the is the evangelical and maybe kind of folk Christian relationship to the world of art and the world of music? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is something that a lot of people are all implicitly concerned about because we, of course, are all uh, raising children. Uh, we're r- raising children in a world of you know a vast prol- proliferation of certain kinds of digital media. There's this enormous um, there's this enormous catalog of something called pop music. We've all been raised with it, and it's ever expanding. There's a million shows your kids can watch or maybe shouldn't watch. There's you know the, the screen time debate and uh, you know the whole you know relationship to technology debate with kids. Uh, all of these things are in our heads, and they're in our heads both as parents and as educators of children. If we're in the if in the, we're in the field of e- the education of children. Um, uh, Nevertheless, um, uh, proper as that is then, the question of how art forms, how things like music, how things like, you know, television, (laughs) how those things, uh, uh, you know, popular novels, all that sort of thing, how those things shape the imagination. That's a I think a really important question to to really nail down at the level of principle. Um, we could come up with a bunch of examples, but I think it's it's important not just to kind of see content and then say, well, that's bad or good, but to understand how whatever content we're seeing actually works upon us. And I think that's kind of what we want to talk about today. So Dale, I'll, I'll throw it over to you, I guess, for, you know, how those yeah. thoughts have been inflecting in you and your context. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, I've got a 16 year old son and um, he's got an iPhone and uh, we have a family account with um, Apple Music. And so uh, while there's restraints on some of the things you can search for, he can find pretty much what he wants to find. And uh, we have a good open relationship uh, in terms of dialogue that he will sort of seek my uh, opinions and my tastes and he knows it from just being my kid. Um, one thing that's interesting when I was growing up, my mom was listening to like Al Green uh, and Amy Grant uh, and dad was listening to like Metallica uh, and the, bo- the bo- both of them loved you too. Um, and I never really got into those deep conversations with like, what is music doing to us, right? Um, not just on an emotional level, but like a physiological level. And so Dale and I have had these conversations and I, uh, everything really reduces down to the old, uh, the old cliche or maxim, you know, trash in, trash out, just be careful of what you put in. But I think what we what we typically what our parents meant when they said that is don't put any bad words into your brain because then bad words will come out of your mouth right um and while there's obviously truth to that i think there's something more going on with music and i think we can appreciate even what would you know on a on a society-wide level consider bad music there are nevertheless nuggets of wisdom that are buried inside of some of those genres, right? Now, I, I don't want to come across as saying 
let your kids listen to bad music because something can help them there. Uh, what I am saying is uh, with the proliferation of music and the different genres, I think it's a sage's duty to seek out where the wise ones are in all of those genres. So take hip hop, for example. Um, there's a lot of people in conservative Christian circles that would say, uh, hip hop is um, sort of prima facie, a genre we should stay away from for a number of reasons because of, uh, you know, the culture that's honored there, the way they look at women and violence and drugs, and this all this is all coming out of the inner city. Um, so let's stay away from there. Uh, but well, well, you could say that about almost every genre, take country music, for example, right, which sort of elevates drunken, um, you know, revelries on the countryside, tearing up, you know, uh, a trail with your four by four or whatever. Well, you can say all that about all these different genres. I think nevertheless, especially within hip hop, in particular artists, what I have seen is a sort of um, poetic beauty that sort of emanates up from uh, the shattered, um, the, the sort of debris of a broken culture. So I, one thing I've said to Joe before is, and I've got this from uh, a particular artist I listen to is, there's an enormous amount of wisdom sometimes in like a crackhead, <laughs> right? Like if you just talk to somebody, I remember I used to do, um, we used to, I used to, uh, donate my time to serve at a soup kitchen here in Melbourne. They feed homeless people. And they gave me a good opportunity to sit with so many people in between uh, the meals and talk with them. And these are humans that have made a series of decisions pursuing their unchecked passions, but are nevertheless very aware of the world. And they have a certain view of the world because of their circumstances and their experiences that they can offer an enormous amount of wisdom for understanding the world. And I think that if you apply that principle across all these different genres of music, then you can appreciate music on a deeper level uh, outside of just sort of like um, the immediate surface level of the message or something like that. Uh, and, you know, you could say the medium is the message, but if that's true, then there's a bunch of different mediums that are emerging right now that we should pay attention to, I guess, is the only point. And I think it's important to put uh, mute. One of the things that um, is difficult when we're talking about something like pop music is that pop music, in some sense, has the flavor of a place. Uh, and on the flavor of a culture and, and of a certain kind of experience. And so when we're talking about the value of such music, so like you can look in the background if you're seeing the video version of this, and this is where like folk music on the porch would come from. It like belongs in its colors and textures and smells uh, in a place like this, kind of like this Appalachian vibe, as it were. Um, uh, but something like hip hop, I think the question, you know, isn't going to be necessarily uh, should I, for instance, really get into hip hop or not, right. uh, you know, and now, you know, there's no obviously moral obligation there, but you could say that there's a, there's a question to be asked about what 
in what world is it having the function that it has and who is it actually talking to and how is it moving that person? I think that's actually a really, really important question. And the answer still might be, well, it's moving them very negatively. But I think if you're in turn, if, if you can be inside of that world a bit imaginatively, then you can identify, and I think this is kind of what you're talking about, looking for the sages. Uh, you can identify which of them are actually really trying to help that kid that's listening to them. Uh, but you have to be able to take that journey and not just just kind of have the outsider's perspective on you know on the music and again that's not a moral obligation but in a sense that's how to judge uh to judge the form and one of the things right. that's fascinating about something like uh, uh, about something like hip-hop uh and i think you could say this about uh folk music as well uh, uh like americana folk music you know you know you know greenwich village kind of stuff uh mm. it reminds me of this article that has been passed around for a number of years now and that I assigned in some of my classes at Davenant Hall, especially on uh, philosophy of modernity. But L.M. Sacassis wrote an article a couple of years back, and I'll apply this back to hip hop and uh, uh, folk music. Uh, L.M. Sacassis wrote this article a couple of years back called The Analog City and the Digital City. And he's trying to help us to understand what is the internet done to kind of the communications ecosystem of the modern world. And he wants to say, you know, the old world of fact checking, the way news worked, the way information flowed in the analog world was kind of slow. So it's like, I say my thing, <laughs> and then you can go home and think about it and come back and give me your comeback. But he argues with the internet, what you see is uh, not just it, the problem with fact-checking is that fact-checking can be fact-checked, can be fact-checked, can be fact-checked. And what you wind up having is actually not uh, not enough information, but too much information. There are too many credible people and you have immediate access to all of them. There's an enormous right. information overload. And now the word it isn't moving uh, 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 the word, a uh, speech in a sense, uh, isn't moving at the pace of, you know, normal time, the pace of bodies. Speech is, is moving at this pace where there's no time for response. Uh, there's this, this line in a Bo Burnham song that says um, uh, something along the lines of the backlash to the backlash to the thing that's just begun. It's a famously, you know, this is this line he sings, a backlash to the backlash to the thing that's just begun. That's what the internet is like right now. Uh, and what that leaves us with, Sacassus argues, nevertheless, is a state in which fact checking and refutation is very hard to come by because everybody's moved on. <laughs> that's literally how modern Twitter works. Uh, uh, but the word itself has this remarkable potency in that context. In that chaos, the word itself can just be uttered in a room. Uh, and because, in a sense, all the, the things that would moderate its influence have been removed in the kind of chaos of the Internet, what you have is that you can just go say something, and it is very potent just to utter speech, uh, to vibe through words, you might say, uh, mm. uh, in a particular context, and in a sense, uh, you might say that hip hop is a is a is a is a musical language that develops in a space. Uh, it develops kind of, you know, if we were giving it one kind of analysis in the gears of capitalism, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. in the in the very place where you're, you know, kind of among the most vulnerable. And, and I think this is where folk music develops as well. You know, the Appalachian style music, they both come from communities of people who've been shoved into extremely vulnerable existence. Uh, and it's interesting what the, 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 the role that the potency of the word 
uh, uh, takes on in those contexts, I think, is worth observing and thinking about. Uh, and mm. yet we're, we, we are nevertheless left in our context with um, not how to, I suppose, moderate the potency of the word, but how to how to speak and respond to speech responsibly. Um, Yes. Yeah. And I think what that does is, you know, music listening in general is something done passively. Like you'll hear people talk about it as a very soothing experience. Like what'd you do last night? Well, you know, I had a long day. So I just came home and sat on the porch and listened to some music and went to bed. Right. Um, it's a source of relaxation. A bit of catharsis goes on in music listening, but it can also be a source of motivation. So it's like, I'm getting ready to go to the gym. I might not put on you know, uh, Bach to lift weights. Yeah, I might put on something with a bunch of beats per minute because <clears throat> my body and my heartbeat and my uh, blood pressure all responding to the stimulation that's coming into me via not only word, but instruments that are all put together and packaged in order to uh, affect me emotionally and physio physiologically. And so what this does to our general music listening experience is, yes, you can appreciate music just passively as you receive it, but it does a deeper um, appreciation of music and all of its textures, both its word and its instrument components, uh, creates um, a, uh, a catalyst for deep reflection and thought. So it can do both. Like music can be passively sort of received or it can be intently stared at in all of its textures and thought through deeply, which the mind then connects to the whole of the cosmos and begins to think about being itself, just being here listening to this. And that's pretty phenomenal. Like uh, I think folk music in particular and classical music also does this. I think all genres of music do this, but with the AirPods or the, the uh, devices that we have to hear music now, uh, you can hear so crisply all of the little details in music. And <clears throat> if you sit and think about it for any amount of time, it becomes very profound. So this thing that's proliferated, that's common, uh, in a common experience among most people, now is a source of deep contemplation and reflection on the cosmos it can be, right? And I think Plato knew this um, because the emphasis he puts on it in The Republic, he warned of the dangers of music. He clearly has a respect for the power of it. Uh, but it also reveals that Plato believed that the that power of music can be easily abused and potentially dangerous because it's it, it appeals to our emotions so much so that it can override our reason. And so just thinking about that uh, is gets us quickly into philosophy, actually, yeah. uh, but also into politics and then into larger art, which is why during the medieval period, you had cathedrals that were built with an eye toward their acoustic, um, you know, how, how well they could carry the acoustics of the music that were going to be played inside of those buildings. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is uh, music should be appreciated on a, on a variety of different levels, and it could be in the um, catalyst for deep philosophical, deep, deep philosophical reflection on life <laughs> in all of its genres. And that's, I, I think, the point that I was trying to make earlier about sort of sages seeking out these nuggets of wisdom wherever it can be found. 
now that music has proliferated. And, and in some sense, it's, it, you know, it's, it's as old as some of the, I don't mean to sound weird about this, but it's as old as some of the, the kind of quote, quote, primal language of the myths, like the language yeah. out of which we write myths is a language that's crushed into the very textures of human experience. And it's not a, uh, um, it is not as such uh, an invitation to discourse. <laughs> That's not the way the word is being deployed there, even though you can discourse about it. And it is the foundation of discourse in some way. Right. That's nevertheless not its immediate effect, uh, that kind of speech. That's not its immediate effect. And in some sense, um, uh, uh, right, the, the potency of the word, you know, if we're in a context where if you utter speech, you know, again, think Twitter, but then you can, you could think of hip hop by analogy. If you utter speech, you're for the most part in that genre of speaking, not um, capable of fully being held responsible by other people. That is to hmm. say, you are you are you are engaging in an act of utterance uh, that once it's out there, there's very little that can kind of um, 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 what's the word I'm looking for, kind of um, suspend or limit the effect of the vibe you're putting out because of how powerful it is to just go on Twitter and say a thing in a particular way. It, meme culture is this. If you, you know, there's a precision, there's a, a good memer and a good tweeter, <laughs> and right. especially somebody who's being vicious in these things. There's a certain kind of precision that doesn't actually have a counter argument. Uh, and yeah. so nevertheless, if you're in that space, there are those, look for the sages, right? There are those who are doing that in a way that is that is so conscious of the power to harm and is so uh, uh, attempting, like very self-consciously attempting to help, uh, uh, but in such a way that you're not leaving a sour spirit, as it were, in the hive mind. Mm, uh, and I yes. think that I think that music, music can, can music can, uh, I, you, know, you know, that kind of music in certain contexts, I would imagine in the in the imagination of a young man might take somebody who is otherwise focused on this thing and help them think higher, to help them think about something nobler, uh, even yes. if it's kind of riddled in their language, uh, which which is like that. That just is quite literally the language. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you, you know, what's you know, what's interesting about that. Yeah, you said it better than I. I think we're saying the same thing, actually. Um, one of the so I teach through Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. This is my second year teaching it. Uh, first year was with the juniors and seniors. This year it's with the ninth and tenth graders. Um, and Boethius talks about uh, the shining. The, uh, that the, 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 the pursuit of happiness is by looking at the shininess of good things, right? That's a bad way to say it, but that's basically what he says. And what I, what I talk to the kids about is, or their students, it's like, what is good? Let's just start there. Um, well, I could say I had a good dinner last night. And you would ask me, well, what did you have? And I could say a steak. But when I'm saying I have a good steak, what I'm doing is comparing and contrasting that maybe with a similar steak that's not as perfect or uh, 
without as many flaws as this other steak, which makes it better, right? And so, so when I say I had a good steak, there is such thing as a bad steak. And we say something is good if it has a limited amount of imperfections. So the more something uh, touches the perfect, the more good that thing is. And for Boethius, he says, look at the good things in this world. And that should function as a trampoline to bounce the mind up to consider the source from whence all things good come. And if it's the source, then it must have no imperfections at all. It must be absolutely perfect. And that's what we call God, right? So then the consideration of a good stake then for Boethius anyway, is a the consideration of a good stake is a, the portal through which we can actually arrive at God, <laughs> like the perfection of God. And I think that this is what I think this is what we're trying to say. Music can do that as well. And the words, when they are put together and they are in their own in their own uh, dialect with their own lingo and their own form, uh, the good music, bounces one up to a deeper consideration about good things in general, <clears throat> which is why, to go back to Plato, he despised certain forms of music because it was bad for the hive mind of his people, and it would drag them down into, uh, well, not being patriotic enough or courageous enough, right? So with this word-centric, with the word-centric rise of music, what I look for in particular, think hip hop and even folk music, I think the Arcadian Wild does this so extremely well, is that there's like double, triple, quadruple entendres packed inside of very potent sentences, which in their syntax to the rest of the sentence culminate in this beautiful masterpiece of, of, a, of the communicative act in order for us to like consider the good. Um, now, that could also be done the opposite direction. And this is where, these are the conversations that I have with Dale. It's like, yes, I'm going to forbid you from certain forms of music because you're not mature enough, but let me help you develop the way that your brain makes connections with the spoken or sung word. So that way I'm training your mental palate to taste that which is good. I'm not just telling you it's good. Uh, what we're doing is looking at all the bits of a thing that go into, uh, that, that make its goodness shine, right? And in that way, we're sort of imbibing the spirit of Boethius and Augustine and Thomas, and it's our whole tradition. Um, so. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's a, I think those are really helpful observations. And I, I'm reminded of, uh, there's a parallel here with the way that we tend to think about uh, uh, Christian relationship to film, the, the way Christians mm. have may, maybe tend to evaluate films. And I'm not saying this is all bad. Like some of it is just, you know, up to people's conscience. It's like, I don't, I will be influenced if I hear too many bad words and I don't want to be around, you know, this, that, or the other in the films. And it's like, that's totally fine. <laughs> there's no, uh, right. 
What's interesting, though, is is very often what what uh, nevertheless people might want to watch films, and so they latch on to the ones that aren't that, and especially the ones kind of made by Christians. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's really interesting when I see that, just like you see maybe in something like the CCM music, like a lot of the old '70s Christian music was kind of cool, uh, but when it was kind of marketed, and you know, you know, you got the CCM era of the '80s and '90s, and especially the kind of the worship music that comes out of that era. Um, you're talking about the way music kind of vibes into you as it were and shapes you. And there's a kind of sentimentalization that mm. is thickly laid on in the very sounds and vibrations, uh, you might say, uh, of, mm -hmm. of, of that genre of music, both in its popular and often in its worship form, though there are exceptions. And it's important to say there are exceptions, but then, then applying that then to this, this film, this film question, there's a similar phenomenon going on in that there's the kind of the clean movie, you know, it doesn't have any violence or sex or language or anything like that, but it's like, the question is, how does film, and I think I've said something like this on the podcast before, but to reiterate, how does film actually shape you? What are the ways in which staring at a screen and watching a narrative play out with human body, speaking words to each other in a developing narrative, what does that actually do to sort of your lizard brain, its values, its imagination, its mental habits, etc.? And so there's a couple of things that I, you know, I find fascinating. There's very few of these, you know, kind of Christian movies that are made uh, where there's not a, a love, some sort of love story in the kind of in the the film. Right. Um, that is because that's part of the script of most films. Right. <laughs> so it's already right. a film script. There's going to be a love story involved. The way the camera looks at people, including women, even in a G-rated movie, the way the camera stares is is a, is a habit. Uh, it's it's a Hollywood habit, you might say, that is written into the way we expect movies to work. Uh, so, mm. this, so film works at that layer as well. But then it's just things in the script themselves. It's how easy are the solutions? How are the problems framed? Uh, what values are behind framing and solving problems that way? Uh, and then you get to the love story. It's almost always going to be a very attractive woman and a very attractive guy because part of the and we don't like saying this out loud, but it is just true. It is just kind of, again, lizard brain true. Part of the pleasure of watching films is looking at attractive people. That yeah. is actually people you're you you enjoy that whether you think you enjoy that or not is looking at attractive people. And that's part of the language of cinema. But what it does then is create an association uh, in, in people's kind of head uh, between ordinary romance and love and being that level of attractive, which is like, you know, inherently they're nines or something like that, right? Intrinsically, right. most people are not that thing. And yet the, the connection here that love and fulfillment and romance or those things are written into the scripts and the image, the icons on the screen themselves. Uh, mm -hmm. And so like, you know, similarly, it's interesting. And then you could, you could, you know, make the point in reverse. You could point out films that you might think have X, Y, or Z, you know, you know, poor content in them or something like that. But there is the question of what is the effect of actually listening to those sounds and hearing all of that in that context? What is the effect of that gaze, those characters, those right. people talking to each other actually on the soul? Uh, of 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 most humans, you know that sort of thing.
And I think those those kinds of questions, and again, there's questions of conscience that are very relevant. You should never sure. all the stuff Paul says about like you know you're never you're never shoving these things at people. There's no obligation right. to do this. <laughs> you know that sort of right. like, watch a movie or listen to hip hop. That's uh, what is what I mean there. Um, nevertheless, I think it's important as we're evaluating them, and this is partly in those texts. You know, Christian freedom. But, but probably what you'd have to imagine is that some people can imagine a relationship to these things that you that you don't or that do, maybe doesn't make sense to you but does make sense to them and maybe right. as real, of course people can make excuses and they probably do that all the time and paul assumes that too and he basically says that's none of your business <laughs> right 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 yeah and i think you know uh the reason that um i use remind me to come back to beauty and the beast based on what you just said with with this idea of beauty being sort of ingrained into us via um film or the way that we just interpret what love looks like between two people, two beautiful people. Um, but I, the, one of the reasons that I like to talk about art in general as uh, in culinary terms, like I always use the term palate mm. uh, and taste is because there's something about the maturing palate. So I think I've mentioned this a bunch of times. I love to cook. Um, there's just something that's deeply satisfying to me when I cook and I'm happy when I cook. And I think part of it is because you're taking all of these ingredients, these fresh, good ingredients that you've hand selected with a particular goal in mind. You're trying to achieve a particular taste or experience to set the whole vibe in the room for your family or if you're entertaining people. And then you sort of conduct it. You bring it all together like a symphony to like, and then somebody takes a bite of it and they're like, mm, wow. And you know that feeling, right? Or they might be horrible. And they're like, well, that was all right. Uh, but your taste buds change as you mature. They just do. So my nine-year-old daughter, every restaurant we go to, she orders chicken nuggets and French fries. She, we force her out of her comfort zone sometimes because I want to introduce new flavor profiles to her. But her default is chicken fingers and French fries. Whereas my son, now that he's 16 and we, you know, food is a big deal in our family, not just my, you know, me and Rachel and the kids, but also like my brother and his family, my sister and her family, mom and dad, it's just a big deal. As we've explored different tastes together, now Dale at 16 has a pretty good palate and he's adventurous in the things that he's willing to explore with, but he's been trained through all of the different flavors and allowed to taste all the different flavors, even against my recommendations, he's been allowed to form it, uh, what he likes, not just based on the taste, but based on like a million things that cluster around the experience of tasting a thing. So now eating food is not just something you do to keep the machine going. It's like participating in an artistic experience of someone's imagination that has taken their skills and their time and applied it to their craft in order to deliver something good to you, something beautiful. I think that's the same with all art. That is art, uh, whether that be film or music or painting or whatever, right? Cooking, whatever you're doing, there needs to be um, this sort of training of the palate through experience 
that then molds into the habits that you have in relationship to that piece of art. Um, why do I say that? Because I I have done this in my parenting, and I think that there is a there is a big chunk of parenting that's good on this on this level. Rather than just to deny and say bad and hold up and say good, you should do that. But as the child matures, they're no longer in need of the mere Ten Commandments. They need the wisdom of Solomon and David. And so like the trajectory of the life of Israel begins with like talking to children. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do this, you know. Uh, but then as they mature, it's like, why shouldn't we do that? Well, then that's where all the wisdom literature is filled out. That's the same way I think about the way that our palates are trained and form as we mature in our relationship to art. Uh, one thing I want to say about what you said, and then I'll be quiet. It is interesting. You know, I think I've got this thought from you. I think you said this to me initially, but we see more beautiful people in one day than most people a thousand years ago saw in their entire life, right? Um, because we see so many faces. There are so many faces. And we also have like entire industries made up around making your face pretty and your body pretty, right? Or handsome. Um, so film then does sort of hold up this, you know, what Which is- Which is most of the, the faces stuff? we see. Most of the faces are digital or print. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but that's why I think Beauty and the Beast is so, such an intriguing story because it's like the beast is a beast. The beast is this hideous, you know, sort of gnarly, uh, contemptible, sour, authoritarian, you know, uh, selfish, introvert. And then a beautiful woman falls in love with the beast <laughs> and he transforms into a king. Jordan Peterson has talked a lot about this, so I won't, you know, go into any depth, but that's art that's done really well, that breaks the sort of uh, lizard brain stereotypical norms that I don't think, to your point about most sort of intentionally clean Christian film, uh, they don't actually do that, but that is a picture of what Christianity is, that's a closer picture than what to what Christianity is than a lot of these campy, cheesy productions made by Christians so that you have some clean option to view with your family. Even though Beauty and the Beast is not like, you know, rated R, it's a G movie. Nevertheless, this, this idea of the ugliness, uh, the ugliness turning into something beautiful through well, love. You're shaping, you're shaping an imagination relative to which the gospel and scriptures will seem real more through something that actually pings and shapes that imagination. Yeah. That's something that manifestly is just not that in touch with the real world and ordinary yes. human experience and that sort of thing. And that's what good art does. Good art, art is not the gospel. The gospel is, is an art is God's greatest art, but that's different than saying art is the gospel, right? Right. right. Art isn't the conclusion. It's it, largely art's relationship to us is highly suggestive. It, it implants us, but you, you, you know, the soul is meant to reflect on its effect in us, you know, that, that kind of thing. Uh, and so, you know, 
largely what you're pointing out, and I think is just very true, is that um, some things can shape our soul uh, in a way that is more consonant with maturation and even Christian maturation than mm. than a lot of the product. And I really, this is what they are: a lot of the products <laughs> right. uh, that are that are that are sold as doing that for you um, in some sense, and. You know, none of this is this is this is one of those areas where nobody's you know none of us are really the perfect wise sages or something like oh, that. Oh, of course not. These are new. Yeah. These are new media in a lot of ways, and the and the ethical questions that are coming up, and even imagining how they shape us, and even studying their effects on the body, and all those sorts of things. That's still going on. I mean, we're still kind of at an infant stage of fully understanding uh, how these yes. things impact us. Maybe that's overstating it a little bit. We we know a good deal, uh, but the point is, is it's not necessarily whatever we do know nevertheless hasn't synced down into our into our instincts and into folk knowledge you might say uh, and so this is a conversation that's largely just you know it's rooted in that here we all are yeah, yeah. <laughs> here we, all are. we all have to think about these things and thinking about how this stuff works on us i think that's the big thing here how does this stuff actually work on us and yes. Take away all of the do this and don't do that. It reshapes even kind of the imaginative way in which we pr approach and ask that question. And then, of course, you know, you're raising your kids and, you know, you do something like what Dale says. You hold their hand as they go along and, you know, expose them to more. But the idea, as you said, is to is to develop an internal, you know, wisdom is the internalization of the law. It's not the law yeah. coming from the outside and you saying, okay, it's it's the value out of which the law speaks being donated to your heart so that your movements are naturally in accordance yes. with that external, the value behind that external judgment. Yeah. One of the last things I say, because I know we want to sort of start landing the plane here. Um, Aquinas has this beautiful quote. I'm going to mess it up, but the substance of it is, you know, uh, we say we think it's uh, virtuous to like love the things that are hard to love. We even say this, like that's a hard guy to love, but if you love the hard guys, that's virtuous. Good for Aquinas, you. <laughs> yeah. Right. Whereas Aquinas actually says, no, uh, the, the less you have to labor to love, the more virtuous you are because you are just loving. And that's, that's, I think the point is, our relationship to the arts, music in particular, um, we do have do, do's and do nots morally. We do. We just do. Uh, yep. But learning how to discern all of the good um, is, a, is an art in and of itself. And so music then becomes a gateway into a deeply reflective life that has philosophical, theological, moral, and ethical implications. And therefore we understand its power and then you can really listen well. Uh, so maybe this is a call to, you know, yes, you be a passive, uh, be a passive agent listening to good music, enjoy it, but also take it seriously and think carefully about it. Uh, and maybe try a couple different dishes that you're not familiar with and see if you can find some, some, uh, some flavors there that, you know, satisfy your, your tastes or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I think the last thing I'll say, it just circling back to, cause it haunts me a little bit, this, this question of the potency of the word and, you know, I'm, 
I guess something of a, you know, somebody that sits on the sidelines and mostly watches Twitter discourse rather than participates in it. Uh, but I've, I've, I've watched it long enough to know that there's a way of speaking words on Twitter that is not subject to accountability, but is very, very, very powerful. And it, 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 we're at a point where that's possible and that's common. And I, I suppose it's one of those, those things that just makes me reflect on, you know, for anybody in those contexts, I suppose there's an extra, there's an extra burden to really understand that when you speak in these spaces, you don't really control what happens to your speech after that. Yeah. When you utter in public, it really is like every, every sentence on Twitter is the old kind of like a, a feather pillow, you know, sermon analogy. Everybody's heard about the rumor, you know, the, the feathers getting, you know, thrown everywhere and you can't gather them all up. Um, and that's right. in a way very haunting. And yet, and yet it is not something we can avoid. Some people actually do have to go speak into that space. And I think um, it's not a task I envy and, it, and, and what it looks like to be responsible in that space is hard to know because we live in a world that that is, almost impossible not to feel a bit passionate in (laughs) we are shoved into the passions all the time uh and i know myself i know myself enough to know and all my friends know me and all my family knows me enough to know that i'm not the most um guarded you know in my speech i'm not the most in control of my tongue i'm not the perfect man of james three uh and and that you know that haunts me privately (laughs) right to think about it publicly uh you know i think we really do. It's just easy to think we're just playing a game out there. Everybody has to go play that game. And there's part of me that just says, but what are we doing? Right, <laughs> what, right. what really is the effect of that kind of communication and its impact on people really in the deepest part of human souls? And that just weighs heavily on me, not as somebody that hasn't failed in that area but as somebody who <laughs> uh i don't know somebody that sometimes talks out loud in public and uh right. Like right now and you you just you just i don't know there's a sobriety there's there's something sober yeah. about, sobering about that yeah sobering and humbling uh and forces one to be cautious uh, but nevertheless we when we talk we think words are the way that we you you don't have a civilization without words. And so they're necessary to the human experience. So use words, but just, you know, recognize what they can do to the soul, <laughs> I guess is, is what you're saying. So, well, very good, brother. It was good to be back with you. I know yes. we're going to try to get uh, in a more, a better routine. Uh, Joe and I are just very busy at the moment, like most of you all out there uh, listening. Um, but uh, if you enjoyed this, please uh, share it with some friends, uh, post it all over Twitter so our feathers can go out um, mm. and uh, sub- subscribe to the YouTube channel. We have all of our previous episodes on the Davenant Institute YouTube channel, and then you can find us anywhere that you can find podcasts. So um, this is good, Joe. Thank you so much. I love you, brother. Love you too, man. All right. Have a good one, y'all. We'll see you later. See you later.